Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I am Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling, as always, is my friend and co-host, Adam. Hey, Patch. How's it going? It's good. It's good. I am excited. I am officially into Stranger Things Season 1, Episode Enter whatever you're going to call it, the episode that I don't remember. So this is good. This is like first time stuff for me. As you guys have been listening, you know that I started this and I cut it off at a certain point. And I, you know, apart from Netflix telling me if I'd watched it or not, I, <laughs> right. I this is the first episode that I did not remember watching. And I was really excited because I was like, oh, good. Now I'm an official first time watcher. So, And this is kind of where it gets, in my opinion, it starts to really pick up. Uh, steam you know we're getting a lot of uh, a lot of momentum now yeah and and by the end of this episode we're at the halfway mark of the right. first season which makes which makes sense it feels like the like we're we're, we're moving we're, we're getting somewhere now right in this episode uh, as you mentioned uh, last episode is directed by sean levy and i think you also mentioned that you know the first two episodes by the duffer brothers feel like a part one and part two of a pilot or an arc this definitely feels like part one and two of Sean Levy's introduction to, you know, the character side of things. And and more than anything, Adam, I think that what stood out to me on this episode was how much it feels like a, like a procedural, how you get all these clues and you're solving a mystery. And yes, the characters evolve, but this was very much in the realm of, okay, the questions have been asked. Are we going to answer some of them? And we do, we get a chance to yeah. really kind of expand this world of Stranger Things inside Hawkins, Indiana, and we get what I think is a really solid fourth episode. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, chapter four, The Body, and as you said, directed by Sean Levy, who actually plays a minor part in this episode. I don't know if you caught no. <laughs> Sean Levy in the episode. Yeah, he's he's the morgue worker who pulls the sheet off of Will's body, or is it Will? I don't know. He pulls the sheet off him, and Jonathan and Nancy are there to identify, and he's out of focus, so you probably, if you knew what he looked like, you could easily miss it, but if you pause it and look at it, and you look at a picture of Sean Levy on, you know, IMDb, you're like, oh, yeah, I can see it. That's him. He's there. Wow. So, and nice. also, the title of the episode, The Body, is somewhat significant because that's the name of the Stephen King novella that Stand By Me was based upon. Oh! So was that a... coincidence? I don't know. I but... know it wasn't. No, it wasn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> As we continue to see little nods yeah. to great literature, great movies, things of the of 80s. the oh. 80s, yeah. So, so good. Fun little little Easter egg, if you will. But and, and a lot of people don't even know that Stand By Me was based upon a Stephen King short story. And so that's the name of the body. If you've, It's actually really, really fun. I mean, a really good read. If you, It's not his typical horror either, which is what makes it sort of interesting right. for Stephen King. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really about, like the movie, for young boys in the 50s who discover a body, you know? Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a great coming-of-age story. Yeah. And I haven't read the novella, but 
the movie's fantastic. I think that if you, if you enjoy this kind of stuff as a new audience who didn't grow up in the eighties, the, you know, stand by me has those same kind of elements, especially in this particular episode. I think now that I'm probably reading into this, now that you've told me this little tidbit (laughs) of trivia, but I feel like there's some little beats, some little moments here that remind me of like, okay, little, little discovery here, a little grown up stuff. Yeah. I, I, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I guess in summation, this episode is really about all the characters, most of them, I should say of the major characters who, who up until this point kind of think that Will's mom is kind of crazy, going crazy. And this episode, by the end of this episode, everyone from Hopper to the boys, they all start to, and, and Nancy and Jonathan, Will's brother, they all in their own kind of independent investigations that are taking place they they all become believers that there's something right. else going on here that's yeah. not what meets the eye not what we're being told not what it appears to be on the surface that there's some deeper mm-hmm. perhaps supernatural perhaps government conspiracy going on and so hopper's mm-hmm. basically going down the government conspiracy route right. the boys are working with 11 to sort of telepathically communicate with will using technology using radios and ham radios And, of course, Jonathan and Nancy in this episode have their own photo darkroom moment where they discover an image of Barb. So, yeah, that's sort of the high level. Like, that's what we get. By the end of this episode, we're realizing that everyone's sort of in a similar place where they they know something's off. Yeah. We're all on Team Joyce by the end of the episode. Exactly. to say. But not at the beginning. You know, the beginning is one of these interesting things because I think the first three episodes had a pretty like it was pretty like drastic like boom like holly jolly opened up with like a jump scare i think the weirdo on maple street had a had a big moment obviously the 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 vanishing of will byers did this had a slower burn and it was still a nice cold open but it opens up with this great use of that echoey indistinct dialogue that i i think we get a a taste of that in ted lasso as well in the episode that you know, Ted, spoiler quick, if you haven't seen Ted Lasso yet, um, <laughs> when, when Ted's nervous breakdown happens, we get that same kind of effect. And I thought that was really, really good. The camera usage was really fantastic. I love the way the scene is shot, you know, tracking the tracking shot from the house to the shed, Joyce getting the ax and, you know, even Jonathan and his headphones from above, you know, really just sort of, I've done that before where I've just put my headphones on to just kind of escape from the world, listen to whatever music or whatever stuff's just going to completely make my mind go somewhere else. Yeah. All that stuff had this really, really great energy to open up the the scene. And it also shows us that Joyce has almost completely, she's almost gone. Like she's yeah. absolutely on the verge of being sent to crazy town. And by the end of the episode, we know that Hawkins, Indiana is actually crazy town. So she's home. <laughs> right. Right. But uh, but yeah, it, it really, really is a is a great cold open. It's a smoother one. It's a softer one. It's not as uh, abrupt, I guess, was the word I was trying to think of. And I think that's good because we've just finished up this last episode where what we think is Will Byers' body. Right. It ends with a soft ending and it opens up with the softer beginning. And I think that's a really great segue between those two episodes to really thread them together. Yeah, yeah. And they really do a good job making you as the viewer as well as the characters kind of think is this will like it really feels like it is him even if you suspect it can't be based on some of the other evidence that we've seen as the as the viewer 
it's like there's a little boy there. He looks just like Will. Like, it's got to be him, right? So Joyce is crazy. She has to be. Or maybe it's his ghost or something. We really don't know. But that's what's great, I think, about the episode is that they really make you believe or question, make you question that he could still be alive or at least alive in a yeah. sort of traditional sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot a lot of the, the episode, what it does, to your point, is – it opens up the relationships of skepticism, these these pockets of skepticism. You have the relationship with Joyce and Hopper, and and it's it makes sense. You know, Hopper's trying to describe to her, he's trying to comfort her that this is how he felt with his daughter, that he wanted her back, and she specifically tells him that's grief. This is not that. This is clearly right. not that. And honestly, Adam, I would probably feel like he does, where I'm like, she is just, I don't know what to do with this. I mean, I would probably not believe her. But then you move into the scene with Will and Elle in the basement and they're kind of recovering or dealing with the fallout of the moment that we saw at the end of the last episode. I love it. He says, what you did sucks. Like he's very blunt with her up to this point. He's been very gentle with her. And now he's like, no, what you did sucks. But I love seeing how Elle uses her power to connect to Will. And I use that phrase connect to Will loosely because she's not talking to him. She's actually... I guess, uh, I don't even know what the word is. Um, try, it's like some kind of, obviously it's a paranormal type of thing, but she's able yeah. to tune into him, I guess, where they can hear him, but not connect, not actually talk to him. Yeah. And it may, like she's and it somehow may, bridging him and the, the radio or the, the technology. Like she can somehow with her mind find him wherever he is and sort of hear you know, record, if you will, his whatever he's saying and send that signal out into something like a radio or a, mm-hmm. a walkie talkie or something to pick up what she's hearing. Sure. And it's yeah. I mean, that's kind of the way it, it's perceived. And they actually have a really interesting flashback scene, which shows her doing just that, but in a in a laboratory setting, which I thought was really interesting as well. Yeah, and and that really informs that later scene with the ham radio where she's doing it more on a grander scale and not only is this crew hearing will but I be- are they hearing Joyce as well? I couldn't really gather are you know through that ham radio are they hearing the dialogue between Joyce and Will where she's talking to him? I don't think they were hearing Joyce. I think they were hearing a pounding which was him pounding on the wall trying to get his mother's attention and because it was intercutting back and forth so we're seeing joyce you know ripping off the wallpaper and essentially trying and 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 for the first time seeing will her son through this kind of organic you know film or membrane i don't know what it is but she could (laughs) see him just inches away but unfortunately there was something growling in the background and she just tells him, I'll get you out of there, but you got to run. You got to hide right now. Get out of there. And I think that's what they were hearing. They were hearing Will pounding and, and kind of calling mom, mom, help me, you know, trying to get attend- uh, help. But I don't think they were hearing what Joyce was saying okay. in in those scenes. I could be wrong, but that's how I picked up on it. Yeah. I mean, it didn't really change what was happening in the scene. No. They, cause in you're right. They didn't respond to Joyce necessarily. Well, they didn't respond to Will either. I would like to point out, this is yet another poltergeist moment for me where he's yeah. calling into Will, you know, run away for run from, I think this is more like poltergeist too, maybe. I don't know. 
Uh, if you if you saw that, it, I think four people. I actually saw haven't it. seen the second one. I've seen the first one many times, but yeah. I never saw any of the. Were there was there more there than two. one sequel? There were two. Yeah, I, there were two. I will say this: I'm an advocate for both the sequel and the third. Uh, they okay. are a departure from the original, but they have some uh, some really some cool stuff in their own right in terms of exploring what the paranormal looks like. The third one has a lot to do with uh, it incorporates a lot of mirrors and windows, uh, okay. which I think is kind of cool. So. Just yeah. throwing that out there if you get nice. a chance to want some poltergeist in your life. Uh, one, two, three, in that order, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also wanted to talk a little bit about Mike in that um, the next day he's in his bedroom because he's ready to, you know, he gets this discovery that L knows how to sort of intersect with Will or at least project that universe beyond and it makes me wonder if Elle actually knows what's going on. So at this point, her nonverbals, uh, her limited verbals, doesn't get a lot of expansion in terms of like, okay, what can she actually control? And I think that flashback kind of informs that where she can target something, but she may not understand it. And so right. when, I, when I see her sort of tuning in with that, you know, that radio, or that walkie-talkie, and she finds him, she obviously can't directly connect to him, but I wonder, you know, how much knowledge does she have of this underworld or this reverse world? Cause I think Will kind of confirms it with Joyce when he's, when he's yelling, he's like, it's like our house, but different. It's like home, but it's yeah. so dark. So and cold yeah, and cold. Yeah. So I'm picturing essentially a mirror image of the living room covered in tentacles and membrane, similar to how Barb was experiencing the pool with all yeah. the, all the craziness, but it got me wondering, you know, how much, and if you want to answer this or you're speculator, maybe we just leave it out there in the rhetorical world. How much does Elle know about that world? Does she know anything? How does she know how to connect to Will? Or is this just another question that we're going to have to kind of wait to get answers for? I think what I can say is that based on what we've seen so far, Elle does see a picture of Will in one of the previous episodes with the yeah. science fair. And that's how mm -hmm. she first says, Oh, you know, that's when she first realizes that she can sense him that she, I, and, and in this episode we get kind of proof that if she's presented with a photograph of somebody that she's never seen before, she can essentially pinpoint where they are in the world around her and somehow communicate or not necessarily communicate, but listen in and sort of project herself into that space with them and perhaps see, or, or maybe it's just hearing, I'm not sure. But yeah, she she's clearly able to use a photographic image as some type of launching pad to learn more about someone or, and where they are, if they're in trouble, what they're saying, yeah. what they're feeling. So I think she, based on what's happened and this this rift that has opened, to this other world she's clearly aware of that and maybe she's never been there but she knows it's a bad place <laughs> and she for some reason knows that will is there and right. is hiding you know mm -hmm. he's in danger well I, I think that i think you're right and when i when i hear you describe it that way i have to agree with dustin in the way that he compares l to professor x this is yeah. something clearly out of the comic books and specifically from movie buff X2 where professor X is able to channel the mutants. And if he were powerful enough, he could kill them or if he, if he wanted to, 
but he doesn't because he's Professor X. But I love that comparison. And it's uh, it's appropriate because I think you're right. That's what Elle is actually doing where she can channel based off of maybe a physical thing. It's interesting. She pointed to Will, but I need to go back and watch the episode. Does she touch the picture? So maybe if she doesn't touch the picture, but just sees Will, maybe something else is different. She has to touch something that maybe Will is kind of connected to in some way. I don't know. That's just more theorizing at this point. But I thought that was a really cool reveal of her capability. Yes, she's telekinetic, but she's also, I would call it channel surfing, you know, and finding yeah. different people on different different channels. But it's it's really interesting how all this stuff is sort of not surprising to to Dr. Brenner. And so we get a little bit more of his relationship with her in this episode. We see him really talking to her very, very calmly, very coolly. I think we've agreed that that's her dad. Uh, this is actually the first time I made a note that Dr. Brenner talks a lot. Uh, yeah. Not like he's not chatty, but even, you know, with the dialogue with her or monologue with her and later on or early in the episode where we finally get to see what that machine is that we don't know it's it's actually a, a harness or a yeah they were bolting it into the ground in the previous episode we weren't yeah but then it cut and we never saw what it was or why they were doing that yeah that scene is really cool because we get to a little, little like stargate moment where you have this yeah. portal where a guy is going through and <laughs> Brenner's Brenner's line is good luck son I'm like are you kidding yeah. me <laughs> yeah why aren't yeah, you like, doing this dude <laughs> yeah like, like you're you're a hero <laughs> you're a hero man go do this sacrifice is what you are yeah, you are exactly. a lamb to slaughter is what you are yep. i also thought it was interesting that that guy's uniform was a different color than everybody else's yeah kind of yeah. like a little red shirt you know in star trek yep. like oh mm-hmm. he's going down there's this yep. <laughs> he seems but... so brave at first also but then when he finally goes up to touch it he kind of looks back and yes. Brenner and the other scientists, he's like, uh, and Brenner's just like, you got this, you know, he doesn't say that, but you could, he's just like, you're, you're going through, man, do it, just do it. In his mind, Brenner's like, how many more of these people do we have to sacrifice before right. we actually get what we want? Yeah. <laughs> but I like that we don't get a lot. We don't get to see behind that wall. We don't get to see what's going on. We only get a little bit of dialogue through the walkie or through the transmission before he's finally, I guess, eaten or he's or something when they pull back it's uh, i think just a cable it's not even a busted cable i think it's just some kind of I it's think like it's the, the whole harness or something that was attached to him got like ripped off somehow yeah yeah i believe and it looks like it's covered it could be blood or it could just be goo from the portal from the that organic mass membrane that you know he was had to pass through yeah and it kind of he kind of obviously makes a hole the whole bigger, but then it kind of knits itself back together after the harness comes flying back through. And it made me think, well, why didn't they send some type of rover in like in Stargate or some kind of uh, drone? I mean, I guess this is 1983, so they didn't have drones like they have today, flying drones, but I'm sure they could send in a little remote control car or something. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Or maybe, or maybe it's something where organic material is the only thing that can pass through. Although he was wearing a, a suit. Yeah. It, it would have been cool if he at least had a, a video camera, you know, mounted on him. Of course it would probably be a giant VHS camcorder. <laughs> Similar to Marty when he's holding yeah, the VHS exactly. with the, with the hazmat suit. That would have yeah. been a great callback. I would have loved it to see that. Yeah. <laughs> that scene also uh, kind of triggered the theologian in me. I don't know if you know this, but 
in Israel's uh, day, when they were doing the uh, the atonement once a year, the the Holy of Holies, this big temple, there was this room with the ark that only the priest, the high priest could go into. And I think if I remember right, the priest goes in and he makes atonement for all the sins of Israel, but he has a rope attached to him because if he ends up either doing something that goes against the law, like either touching the ark or something like that, he instantly dies. And so they have to have a way to pull him back. And that scene just sort of, I know it wasn't doing it intentionally, but I was like, Hey, look, it's like they're going into the uh, Holy of Holies, but there's no atonement being made here. This is uh, no, this no. is, there is a sacrifice, but it's not, for, <laughs> it's not for, uh, for God's holy people at this point. It's for no. Brenner and company. <laughs> yeah. It's for the uh, most likely how uh, the U S government can weaponize whatever is beyond that wall. Or how to harness its energies, whatever. There's, I'm sure there's some type of uh, weapon or profit-based motive for what they're doing. I don't know what they're going to do now. I don't think anyone's going to volunteer to go back through that hole after what happened. Nope. At least not willingly. <laughs> <laughs> not without some psychotropic drugs, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I want to circle back to the doctor's office. This is the scene that comes right after Jonathan tells Joyce, hey, we got to go identify the body. And this is where the mystery box opens up a little bit more. Who did the autopsy? This is the Sean Levy moment, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. They're wondering who did the autopsy. We find out that, quote, someone from state did it. And I'm like, that's not Will. It's a fake. It's a fake. And I love seeing how Joyce and Jonathan both react. He leaves and gets sick. And she's like, he has a birthmark on his right arm. Like, she's ready to do business. Like, nothing's going to deter her. And then later on that scene has Jonathan talking to Hopper and he says, my mom, she's tough. And Hopper goes, yeah, she is. And what I see from that is a little bit of a growth moment for Jonathan. Like you can tell how deeply he cares for his mom and how this is rocking her and how he can't do anything, but she's pushing through. Like she's really working through this. In, in a way that really only she can. And I love that Hopper says, yes, she is. And he doesn't just say that, but he says, she is. You have to know that she is tough. And of course, then she busts in. She says, that's not Will. That's not Will. And we don't know what she saw. Yeah, they cut. They never show if this body had the birthmark or not. You assume it doesn't, but they kind of cut away. You know, you would hope that if this is a fake body, that whoever built it made it. I don't know. I don't know how they create a fake body like that, but whoever did that, you would hope that they would learn everything they can about the, uh, the subject that they're trying to create the body for. But clearly Joyce was aware that this was right. not her son. He, and she even says something like, I don't know who that is, but it's not my boy, you know? Yeah. And at this point, she's still the only one that thinks that or believes that. But as we move forward, as I said, they all, become believers they all believe that um Mm -hmm. that he's still alive yeah well things have to get worse before they get better especially for joyce and jonathan because they have that huge blow up in the street and and this is really those two roads diverge he's like i'm gonna move on like and i I can't remember the actual line of dialogue but he says if you need me i'll be at will's funeral and and yeah storms off and so does she says something like we're like the rest of us are gonna be having a funeral you know yeah and and she's not she's obviously not ready to uh, admit that. And I think that's the big difference is that she, unlike when you mentioned Hopper talking about his daughter's death and how he grieved or dealt with that grief, she still feels like there's something 
unfinished here. You know, she knows that's not her son and she knows that she's been somehow communicating with someone that she believes is her son. So she is unwilling, despite all the evidence to the contrary, to give up on the, the even the smallest possibility that he could still be alive somewhere. And, and I think most parents would would be in that in that boat. If you know, if you if you saw your your child, like Hopper's daughter, die in a hospital, that's one thing you know. That's definitive. That's that's it happened. But when a child disappears, you don't know, right? You there's always that glimmer of hope that something that some some clue will show up or some evidence will appear that will help you find that missing child. And so she's not gonna give up. I feel as a parent, I would probably be the same the same way. I would fight to the end to find yeah. out the truth. Would that be with or without crazy stuff happening in your house? I think that that's probably the yeah. <laughs> it depends if if there was strange walls with that were morphing and creatures exiting them. Then I, I would probably uh, do a lot of what she <laughs> she did. The uh, the idea of this. Um kind of conspiracy behind the body bleeds through in a couple of other scenes where the, I think Hopper's at the, at the station and we find out more about these shady quote state troopers. There's an emphasis on why Will Byers body is being hidden or why it's being handled. Uh, I think one of the characters even says it's not John F. Kennedy. Like there's what's yeah. the importance of this kid and that piques Hopper's interest. And then later on, this was something I thought I may have missed like a cut of some kind because I thought it was a flashback, but this is the bar where he's talking to this other trooper or some, some guy who was in charge of the body. And he uses that spelling bee story, yeah. which I believe is actually true. I mean, the way he tells it, it sounds like he's just recounting the story. And I thought, wait, are, are we, are we flashbacking? What's going on here? But it turns out that he's using it as this really fantastic interrogation or this this way to just extract information uh, yeah. we find out uh sarah is actually his daughter's name i don't know if um we got that before this episode if we did i completely missed it and then we get the uh the eventual like easy way versus hard way of getting dialogue yeah. <laughs> and, and the hard way becomes the way where he's just punching the dude in the face outside the bar he sees that mystery car <laughs> as it takes off and he, he points the gun and I'm like, dude, shoot the tires, Hopper. You've been doing this for years. You're a New York cop, dude. Shoot the tires. But of course, you know, that would just shorten. He, I think he had, you know, he, he hesitated just a little too long and then it was too dangerous, you know, to, to fire a, a gun True. with people, you know, they're outside of a bar, you know, he's not going to, he, he still is a cop. So he needs to be careful. I mean, for, for all he knows, that was a regular person just watching what was happening. So I'm sure the the law-abiding citizen part of him was like you know, hesitated just a little too long, and then he, you know, like you said, if he if he would have shot the tires as soon as he saw it, maybe the outcome would have been different, mm-hmm. and he could have got some more information out of whoever was in that car. But he yeah. clearly was able to find out from the the state trooper that he was punching, and he was basically. The, the cop who was told to discover the body and to not let anyone else, you know, near it uh, until it gets to the morgue. And so there was, he's clearly, he's uncovered a whole level of conspiracy here, which again, why, why would anyone, like you said, why this 12 year old boy, what's, why is he so important to, to cover up what, what may or may not have happened to him? So it is strange. And Hopper is finally coming around to the fact that Joyce, 
might be onto something. And I think yeah. that's it's great because I feel like we feel for Joyce throughout this episode. We feel like she is going a little bit crazy, but because she can't get anybody to believe her. She has seen something. She saw something with no face, as she said in the previous episode. So she has real evidence that something supernatural is occurring. So that's interesting that you say that the no face thing, I think, is a connecting piece for several characters. I think when we look at, we look at, uh, was it Nancy and Steve, I guess, in the outside near the track, we get that that dialogue where she's really worried. And we find out from him that she saw a monster with no face. Like she, what we saw was a shadow. And I yeah. think we were asking the question, what was that? Was it a bear? Was it something? In, right. And, and that comes out where she doesn't know what she saw, but she knew that she didn't have a face. And, and she said, it looks like a, like kind of like a tall man. And you even, you called it a slender man in the slender first episode. Man. A slender man with no face. <laughs> with no face. So you, you called it right away, but we got a pretty good look at it in the first episode. In, we did. In silhouette, did. you know, and yeah. without seeing a face, but if we could see it's sort of, sinewy body and from a distance but yeah exactly this now ties everything together with the sort of the three parallel investigations yeah and i'm and i'm glad that we're getting what i would call at this point tertiary characters because we know joyce's main character hopper jonathan to an extent the three boys nancy and steve are kind of bringing that in with this connective tissue I, i i thought their their conversation was was great. I was very connected to Nancy. You know, he says, let's not worry about this. I don't want to get in trouble. And she's like, I can't believe you. And I'm yelling at the TV going, I can't believe him either. He's such a jerk. Come on, Steve. Yeah. But of course that's Steve Harrington, you know, as good as your hair is, Steve, you can be a jerk. We get that. We get that information. We also get that connective tissue between her and Jonathan when they're talking a little bit and she mentions the monster or I don't know if it's during the the development part of you know brightening up the picture, but she starts to say he didn't have a and he says what and she goes a face and she goes my mom said the same thing and now we've got more connective tissue there exactly and of course it it culminates to this moment that you alluded to earlier where we have Joyce ripping through the wallpaper talking to her son and then taking the axe to the wall but now the wall has dissipate like the other dimension is gone yeah and i'm like oh great what's happening there more questions for me which is fine i'm good with that but it's such a great climactic scene because then we get at the same time or maybe it's a little bit earlier hopper coming to like the pinnacle of his investigation where he sneaks into the hospital or wherever it is tries to convince the the guy guarding you know they're supposed to be off duty and of course he ends up just punching him and that guy by the way was reading Stephen King's Cujo. So he, he even I was makes wondering, a comment I couldn't read, about that. Yeah. I could not read the book title, but I thought, okay, I'm looking at little things. What's he reading? Oh, cool. Of course, yeah. Stephen King's Cujo. That's awesome. <laughs> he breaks in, finds the body, and then he starts cutting. And what does he find? Cotton. Oh, yeah. my gosh. I don't even know the significance of that. Is this obviously the significance at this point is it's not Will Byers unless he just ate a lot of cotton and died yeah. by cotton. It's like movie magic. It's like making dummies to, you know, for horror movies or something. They made a, it looks like someone made a child uh, that looks photorealistic, you know, from right. a distance, right? Like, yeah. and, and again, Joyce and, and Jonathan were only looking at him through a window 
across a room sitting on a table with a with a sheet pulled back briefly so i think like in in anything any in a movie setting you look at something on the screen it looks pretty real but if you could go up and inspect the prop you might start to see the seams or see where it's not authentic now I, again we're not given any more information other than it's clearly not will and it looks to be like a dummy some type of yeah but his face does look like Jonathan. I mean, I'm not not Jonathan. His face does look like Will. If you look at it, I mean, it could just be a general 12-year-old boy likeness, but it, to me, it kind of resembled his face. So whomever or whatever was able to construct this body did a pretty good job. Yeah, but at the same time, the camera work never shows us a direct right. shot of the face. We always see it from the side, sort of out of focus, which I thought was really clever because it couldn't confirm or deny our suspicions of that's definitely not Will or that definitely is Will. And then when we get to the whole scene with the cotton, and this is me being a cinematographer at this point, if we had seen a clear shot of him from like the top down or something to kind of confirm our suspicions, then when he cuts him open, it would feel like we just got sort of uh, faked out. Like it was a, a MacGuffin of some kind. And I'm glad that they didn't do that because what it did was it put us in that kind of, unreliable narrator's chair as well, where we're like Joyce, we're like Hopper, and we have to do the drastic things to really confirm what our suspicions are. Because up to that point, we don't know. Right. We have half the cast saying he's dead, half the cast saying he's not. And the only way that we confirmed up until this point is that Joyce comes out and says, that's not my son, but we don't hear if he had a birthmark or not. Right. Another interesting thing, of course, she didn't tell Hopper this, but you could have looked on the arm or wherever on his right arm or right shoulder, wherever it was and shown that it wasn't there. But I think, again, I think the approach was appropriate because it helped suspend our disbelief and helped us feel like we were solving that mystery with him. Right. Until that cut that Hopper makes, we don't know for sure. And we're right there with Hopper. In fact, there's a great beat there where he starts to cut and then he stops and kind of looks down like, am I doing this? You know, am I cutting open this poor boy? to see if he's real and then he's just like all right and he just goes for it you know from like the belly button all the way <laughs> up to the chest and 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 then you can clearly see it when he pulls the cotton out that the skin it's like rubber it's not like actual flesh like the surface appears to be skin but uh, the thickness of it is like a half inch thick rubbery substance in it and it pulls up that way as well yeah. so it clearly is not a human being well and that confirms the fact that this is a man-made thing so up to right. this point if will's body hadn't been real. If it wasn't his, one of my theories is that this monster spits out a fake version. Of ah. Again, a beta unit. He's, he's yeah. spitting out this robotic version or this alien version of Will that serves as a replacement. This is obviously not. This was created by someone, Brenner and company, whoever. And, uh, and so we know that like Hopper, we know, okay, something else is going on. And then he basically goes non-cop the rest of the episode where yeah, he's, he's cutting open. I think he's going into the Department of Energy or whatever the, yeah, the facility. Yeah, the, the, the Hawkins Laboratory. He basically you, brings yeah. some cutters and he's just going to cut open the, the barbed wire fence and go right on in. He's like, and that's where the, the episode ends. So we don't know what ha- he Maybe they they catch him, but he's just, he's not even, it's like in the middle of the night too. So he's not even willing to wait until the next day and try like he did previously to kind of show up at the guard station and flash his badge again and say, I need to speak to somebody. He's, I think he, at this point he realizes that he's not going to get any truthful information 
going through proper channels, if you will, and that if anything, he's going to be continued. Uh, they're going to continue to lie to him and give him false information. So if he wants to do a proper investigation at this point, he's going to have to break the law and go yeah. against you know whatever government agency is behind this. Absolutely. And and clearly putting himself in, in great jeopardy. Even that, that state trooper even says when he's punching him, you're going to get us both killed. So he's clearly in a little over his head at this point. He doesn't know what he's up against, but he's determined. And I think he's also he's got a little bit of that, a little bit of a death wish in the sense that he's he doesn't have a lot to live for right now in his life other than his job. And he lost his daughter. His wife moved out. We don't quite know exactly what happened there but he's you know drinking smoking popping pills you know sleeping around like he's clearly just have living a very superficial surface existence at this point so this has almost given him a new purpose especially because there appears to be some type of history with topper and joyce as well which right. we don't really fully understand but yeah. uh, as i said previously at the very least, they could have been high school classmates and just be friends. And, you know, he's trying to do the right thing and get to the bottom of this for Joyce and for right. himself. You know, I think he was helpless with his own daughter. And mm. he, I think maybe he sees this as a chance, a, uh, an opportunity at redemption and yeah. being able to do something right for someone else. Right. And yeah. fix a problem. I think you can also say that this does not happen in New York, the things. And maybe you can confirm or deny that these things do not happen in New York, or maybe they do, and we just don't know about them. <laughs> well, if you've watched Ghostbusters, you'll know that's that's almost a documentary. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. Like like half of that's true. Half you know, true. Yeah. I haven't seen any giant marshmallow men, but you know, there's a lot of slimers flying around yeah. and no, that kind of thing. <laughs> Got to take some creative liberties, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh man. Well, let's talk about the kids, the trio, yeah. or I guess the trio and uh, and and L. Uh, they have a lot of screen time as well. As we mentioned before, they all get together to listen for Will, and they realize they're going to need a bigger radio. Called it. Ham radio comes into play. Felt so good knowing that. Okay, this is yep. what they're going to need. But uh, but getting to that point was really cool. I, I basically said. This is just E.T. in a new form because they get L to dress up like a girl or look like a girl in which yep. that's a wig thing with, and a dress yep. just like E.T. Yeah, just like E.T. The the bike sequence is similar. You know, you get the, everybody on their bike and she's riding with them. And I love her face. She does this like half smile, like she feels very free in this moment. And then we get kind of this great sequence when they get to school and the assembly is about to start and they're trying to break into the the teacher's office to use the ham radio and they did this whole bit of like, pretend to be sad, pretend to be sad. <laughs> and it's just really good kid acting. This is really yeah. good stuff. This back and forth dialogue that is just making me laugh. And I think you mentioned this on uh, an earlier episode that these types of moments are necessary because the series itself so far has been very, not, not very dark, not like breaking bad dark, but it's not a happy when it's an adventure and it's a suspense and you need to have these moments of levity. And I think that yeah. scene in particular, all those guys were just so funny of just trying to act cool, act sad. And then they, they end up having to go to the assembly 
which they know at this point is just stupid because Will's not dead, at least right. not that they can tell. And then, of course, it leads to one of the, the best moments of the episode where um, Elle gets to <laughs> take oh, on bully. Mouth Breather. Yeah. yeah, gets to take on Mouth Breather and make him pee his pants. I thought, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> and like sort of like freeze him in place. I, I think yeah. she kind of prevents him from like almost temporary paralysis, you know, just kind of he can't move, do anything. And I don't know if that causes him to pee his pants or if she also somehow like squeezes his bladder <laughs> with her mind to make him pee. I'm not quite sure. I don't know what the mechanics are of that. But it, yeah, it's a great I mean, uh, any <laughs> movie where a bully gets <laughs> the mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> I can see, you know, think, you know, she's just putting some some mental pressure on his bladder squeezing and then there you go you gotta got pee pee pants but uh oh yeah gosh. i i just i'm i'm a fan of any movie where bullies get their comeuppance you know never ending story we talked yes. about that on yeah feel and film yeah the, the end scene such a great moment when they get to put the the bullies in the dumpster yeah it's just there's something that makes you feel good about that and I, they've done a good job throughout almost almost every episode of just making him an absolute jerk. You know, he says yeah. all the worst things you can say to all three of the boys. You know, he's just constantly ragging on them and saying really inappropriate, you know, racist and homophobic things. And just really like they set him up <laughs> to get some good revenge. It's set up really well for that particular scene because you hear them and then you see the groove, you see Mike, and then you see it, it's a it's a great shot because the camera is pointing at an angle and then you see Elle just kind of lean forward. Yeah, she's and look staring. at them and then she get, yeah. and then she goes, mouth breather. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like you know what's coming. Yeah. And the end of that moment, the end of that scene, Adam, is so priceless because yes, we get the freeze again, a la X Men two. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah uh, we get the peeing which is not a la x-men 2 it's original <laughs> to stranger things but then we see a slight grin and then she wipes the blood off of her nose yeah to me i thought that was such a such a cool thing because you wouldn't have gotten that payoff had you not gotten the setup of her using her power and having her nose bleed so i right. thought it's such a power move for someone just to sort of rub their nose but to know why she's doing it makes it even better i thought it was a great yeah. satisfying ending and Yay for beating up here, getting bullies what they deserve. Because <laughs> I love that stuff too, man. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's also a good moment for Mike because even before Elle does this, he kind of, for the first time ever that we've that we've seen, stands up to this bully. He, he approaches him and says, that wasn't right, what you said, you know. And I think that's important because it shows that he's growing as well. He's starting to, even without, yeah. I, mean, I don't think he had any expectation that Elle was going to do anything. He just couldn't take the fact that they were essentially making fun of the fact that their friend died. And seriously, I mean, that's a horrible, I mean, what kid would mm -hmm. think that was an appropriate thing to do? Uh, yeah. He even says something, we all deal with things in different ways. Like, like this is ridiculous. Wow. But, I mean, he <laughs> and Steve Harrington need to hang out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they're brothers. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Somehow Steve Harrington's still still cool, even though he's a jerk. I'm still like, yeah, yeah but you're cool, you know. He's, he's a cool jerk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I made a song about him. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you have any other highlights before we wrap up this? Yeah, episode? I mean, the only other really great moment we talked about it a little bit, but is when they do finally, after that assembly, go into the the AV club room where the ham radio is located, and they finally 
are able to sort of amplify L's ability, and that's where they can can listen and hear the pounding and the hear will calling for help. What I think we see for the first time, though, in that scene is her kind of get wiped out by using her abilities, mm, right? Yeah. Every other time, as you said, her nose gets a little bloody. She wipes it away or whatever, but she seems fine because she's doing something very minimally taxing, at least for her, whether it's levitating the Millennium Falcon or, or closing a door quickly or something like that. It doesn't seem to drain her or tire her too much. But for some reason, this communication with Will via the ham radio really made her exhausted now is she sick or is she just tired does she need food does she need fuel like i don't know right we don't we're not really given a lot more but i think it's clear that her powers have limitations right her she can't just do anything forever she has she hits a a wall and has to stop and has to rest and sort of maybe recharge just like anything right right and how does she recharge i don't know but it's clearly something that it's going to probably play a role going forward. Yeah. It makes me wonder if she does have a, like a rechargeable battery or if she depletes and then a little bit is lost where she has to right. be injected with a drug of some kind. We haven't seen that yet, right. but at this point, I think her abilities are natural. They're just being harnessed yeah. as they were in the flashbacks. I don't think that they're unnatural or that she's been mutated by something. I think she's a natural born mutant, which professor right. X would be right. very happy about that because he could obviously invite her to the uh, to the mansion, you know, and enjoy school <laughs> yeah. and hang out with uh, with wheels and and all the other people that are yeah that are different than than the world. <laughs> yeah. You also mentioned offline that Brenner appears to have uh, an interesting accent that we pick up on for the first time, and it's it's interesting that you say that because back in 2016, Matthew Modine actually tweeted a response to somebody who asked that very question, and his his response was very uh, short and sweet. He wrote, good question, secret past, and I ain't saying what. So something about his accent has to do with his secret past. Okay. And that's public, so I'm not giving anything away. I feel feel smarter now. (laughs) But the fact that you picked up on the fact (laughs) that he didn't have, it wasn't just Matthew's accent. You know, Matthew grew up in Utah and moved all around with his family. So... He, he clearly was was acting here and giving the character a slight accent that might differ from his own. And it'll be interesting to see what the backstory is. Yes, indeed. I'm excited to, to <laughs> dig into that. Um, a couple of things for me, and then we'll, we'll finish up here. I love the fact that they mentioned the city of Jonesboro, which oh, yeah. I know is in Indiana, but it's also a city in Arkansas. I'm going to just say that they made a mistake. They were filming somewhere in <laughs> Northwest Arkansas, and they mentioned Jonesboro. Yeah. No. Um, when was uh, that? Was that when they mentioned that there there was someone from a uh, a grief counselor coming from the church yeah. in Jonesboro or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I was like, "There's probably grief counselors there too." In yeah, Arkansas. sure. <laughs> sure, there are. So shout out <laughs> yeah. directly to Arkansas. <laughs> yeah. I also thought it was interesting in terms of like the clues that we're getting. We find out that Barb's car is missing, so I think that coupled with yes. Will Byers' yeah. cotton body, we definitely have a man-made conspiracy happening here. Right. And so if I had to sort of sum up my thoughts so far, which would take another 20 minutes and I don't want to do that, I'll just try to keep it in a few <laughs> words. I would say we have two big things going on. We have a monster that is taking over the town of Hawkins that is somehow either was contained by this conspiracy group 
or has now kind of expanded beyond its containment. And then we have L who might be some sort of conduit to that. And then we have Brenner who is the man behind it all. And he's got some kind of idea, but, but yeah, I think you have two big thing, two main things happening here. You have a, an alien presence and you have a government conspiracy, which is just the perfect formula for a 1980s based TV series, which is why we have Stranger Things. That's right. So, you know, here we are, four episodes in. (laughs) And along those lines, there are a couple other fun little Easter eggs that uh, I will point out before we wrap up. I always point out in previous episodes if there are interesting posters on the walls of the the kids. Did you see the poster in uh, Mike's bedroom wall in this episode? Another 80s classic. He has a poster for the Dark Crystal. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, another fun thing I noticed upon this viewing, the teacher in Nancy's class is reading uh, Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, ah, yeah. which it inspired Apocalypse Now, of course. And again, it's not a direct 80s reference, but it's a you know late 70s film connection, if you will. And then there's... In those flashbacks, we see, of course, Elle with all the kind of electrodes on her head. And that, for me at least, because I, I saw it somewhat recently, again, reminded me of, of Drew Barrymore in Firestarter. There's oh, a lot yeah. of scenes like that yeah. uh, as well. So another another Stephen King 80s film that I think is, they've drawn quite a bit of uh, inspiration from. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then it, it's maybe a stretch, but I saw a connection when Joyce is chopping with that giant axe against the wall. I was like, oh, that's Jack Torrance, The, the Shining. Yeah. Yep. yep. <laughs> and she's kind of crazy, just like, you know, she's crazed, yep. just like he was, for a different reason entirely. But, yeah, so there's, so there's lots of good stuff. And, now there's, and that's Stephen King as well. So Stephen King books, movies, clearly are a huge in, you know, inspiration for the series. But in particular, this episode is just loaded with them. Yeah. And I, I, I love finding those things. I think it's going to be important, and maybe somebody already has done this, to come out with a publication, a book called The Easter Eggs of Stranger Things, and and just have chapters, like yeah. chapters, you know, in <laughs> the same font, by the way, yeah. <laughs> uh, where it, it talks about each episode's chapter, you reveal, and then just you can talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. And then you just talk about the different movies. That would honestly inspire me to just watch and rewatch all these again, just so I can see some of those. I didn't pick that up. The Shining until you started talking. I was like, oh, that's totally The Shining. And I, and I didn't either in the first viewing back in 2016. This is what I think is making it so much fun for me to revisit it now, you know, years later, is is getting to really watch it with a slightly more, because uh, I kind of know what's going to happen. So I'm not so attached to the drama uh, in the moment. Mm-hmm. I'm more looking in the background and looking at the connections and sort of noticing these little little nods that they clearly put in with full intention and knowing like you know if if, if you're going to have a, a character reading a book well, you got to decide what book th- what book is he reading and why right it, every decision is made for a reason you don't just stick a book in a hand right you you make a choice and i love that they're having fun with that i love that they're really going all in and they're not real blatant like they're not in your face like you could totally miss these things if you're not paying attention which i think right. makes them more enjoyable to discover which right. you know any easter egg is good because it's almost imperceptible 
mm-hmm. unless you're really closely paying attention and right. and al- almost searching for them. Yeah. And I mean, the truth is that when you look at these things, like a book or a poster, they're not only little nuggets that you find, but they're also appropriate for the time period. So right. when you put Cujo in the hands of a police officer, was it Cujo? Wait, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You only see the back cover um, of a picture of Stephen King, but Hopper says something. He's like, oh, good book, that mutt, you know? And so, you know, he's talking about referring to uh, what book. Uh, that Stephen King wrote <laughs> yeah. involves a mutt. Well, it's yeah. Cujo, and so yeah. the, it, you don't even see the front cover. So you got to do a little put put the pieces of the puzzle together there. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's 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 good. But I think it's it's nice that it's appropriate for that time period. Like it'd be one thing to just throw like an '80s reference in at some point, but like if this is 1982 Indiana, I mean, I'm sure you could go back and say when was Cujo written, and if it had been written in like 1985, that would have been a out of continuity yeah. reference, even though it was a fun little eighties reference, I have not gone back and done the research, but I would think all these references that you're bringing up, like the posters are all things that existed in that year or before, because this is a very specific time. This is 1982, right? It's 1983 in, towards in Christmas time, like leading okay. like between Thanksgiving and Christmas, I believe we're yeah. at right now. Uh, so it's, you know, we're almost 1984. It's the end of the year. So yeah, uh, so far everything that I've seen book-wise, poster-wise makes sense. Like they're all things from the, you know, late 70s, early 80s. There was one moment in I think it was the last episode where one of Hopper's deputies mentions, you know, the space this is where they make the space lasers, you know, in in the lab and and he references the Ronald Reagan Star Wars initiative yeah. and i was yeah. like wait a minute i don't think he came up with that until like 1984 so i looked it up and in fact it was launched in march of 1983 so it totally okay. would would have been in the news star wars was the nickname but it was his strategic defense initiative or or sdi and it was basically a concept that they would launch tons of you know satellites into orbit and they would have lasers that could intercept nuclear missiles if they were to fly, you know, from the Soviet Union over the pole, you know, and come down on us, that this this laser net almost would catch them in space in like low low Earth orbit and it was nicknamed Star Wars. So when he was when yeah. he brought that up, I was like, that might be a you know a mistake. They might have jumped the gun on that. And uh, no, it was timed correctly. March twenty third, nineteen eighty three. I just looked it up again to confirm. And uh and as we said, we're at the end of eighty three. Yeah. So trust the Duffer brothers, please. Yeah. Adam. I, I clearly they them. did their research and yeah. to make sure whatever was happening was time <laughs> correct or time appropriate. It's, yeah. Time appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, that will wrap up this episode of AOS. Adam, what's coming up next time? Uh, chapter five of Stranger Things season one entitled The Flea and the Acrobat. And I honestly can't remember what that's in reference to. This reminds me of uh, some of the Ted Lasso episodes titles where we were like, what does that even mean? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But this is, we're going back to the Duffer brothers here. So Sean Levy had his two episode arc and we're heading back to the show creators in episode five. I, I feel like the flea and the acrobat. I remember when I watched it and I figured out what we learned, what it is in reference to. I remember thinking, Oh, that's really cool. And now I'm, but I like totally I'm blanking on it. So I'm excited. I kind of want to just watch it right now. And like, what was it? 
Well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing that. Yeah, I will be yeah. doing that right after we record as, yeah. as I plan to do. Yeah. Um, and as I typically do, I'll probably fall asleep and have to watch it again. But that's fine. I'm good with that. I, it's early enough for us as we're recording this that I feel like yeah. I'm, I've got my, got my tea over here, caffeine. I may start chewing some gum, maybe some sunflower seeds. Just to, I got to stay awake. And you gotta, you gotta I, do I, I've said this offline to you. I'm like, I need to watch the next episode. But for yeah. the, for the integrity of this show... I am staying put because I don't want to talk about things that are any further than the current. I know it's tough. It's this, as we've said, I think in previous episodes, maybe the very first episode, this is might be one of the first shows that really kickstarted the binge, a new show the day it launches, or it may have done it on like a much bigger scale than, uh, than we had seen prior to this. It's that good. It just, you have to see where it's going what comes next and they just do such a good job and it doesn't ever feel either like you're just building up to some ending like each episode still works as a great standalone story which is so amazing like they're not working just to get you to the end result because otherwise rewatching would be boring because then you're like oh well now you know the ending who who cares you know how they got there it works because the characters are so well developed and the setting is excellent everything about it just the casting it all just the music we've said all this before but i I can't get over i love the opening credits it's just (laughs) such a cool show it is All right. Well, thanks for tuning in and joining our conversation, as you always do. I'm Patch, he's Adam, and we are out of here.